Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you made it. Uh, glad you're awake and alive and uh, ready, hopefully, to study the Word with me this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Uh, before we begin, just want to say thanks to Drew Morgan for filling in last week. Um, oh, yeah, we'll catch you. Um, and in the coming weeks, we'll also have some more folks filling in as I take some vacation time and do some, uh, do some work. Uh, so you'll hear from a couple of, couple of different faces in the weeks ahead, but um, I'm thankful that we have so many people who are ready and willing and eager to teach. Um, yeah, it's a great encouragement to me as well. Um, all right, so you should have found Matthew th- chapter 13. Uh, but before we get into Matthew 13, we need to talk about farming. So... In our day and age, when we think about farming, uh, there may be a a bunch of things that come to your mind. Uh, I grew up in Wetumpka, Alabama, which is, um, let's just say, very rural, and there are a lot of farmland, uh, farmlands, and when I go to my house, I pass by uh, farmland every time. And so uh, all of us from around here are probably well acquainted with seeing uh, farmland or just crops and things like that. But in our day... Farming is kind of a technological marvel. And you think about all the things that go into growing crops or growing trees or growing something out of the earth. This requires mechanical engineering, a knowledge, at least a working knowledge of genetics, meteorology, understanding weather patterns, modern agri-science techniques, and more and more and more. Uh, There's so much required to, to be able to produce at the level that we produce now in a modern era Uh, with our crops. In Jesus's day, however, much of the technological side was replaced with just experiential wisdom and hard work. Uh, They didn't know things like weather patterns. They didn't have an understanding of genetics. They didn't have all of the things that we have today. A farmer would scatter the seed of his crop. He would then till the soil to cover the seed and then hope that the winter rains would be sufficient to cause germination and growth. And even then, it was a long time to wait for the harvest. But the farmer would be confident that his crop would produce a multiplied harvest. He may lose some seed to the birds who are always looking for a meal. He may lose some crops to the blistering sun that would wither poorly rooted plants. He may even lose some good growth to competing plant life, weeds and thorns and things like that, choking out what was originally planted. But the growth among the good soil for a farmer in the first century would more than make up for his lost labor, right? The actual crop that would be produced would be abundantly more than all of his labor put together. Even the things that he lost, it would be made up. Now, up to this point in the story of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus seems to have been working in bad soil, if we could just continue the metaphor. Although he's been working through his teaching in Matthew 5 through 7 and his healing in Matthew 8 and 9, The sending out of the disciples in Matthew 10 was promised to be tough sledding. It was going to be hard work. It was going to be full of persecution. It was going to be difficult to maintain. And Matthew 11 was all about being misunderstood by the crowds. Even the people that Jesus was teaching to didn't understand what he was really trying to say. And last week, you saw that the leaders of Israel were actually set on killing Jesus. His own family didn't even understand him that you read about at the end of Matthew 12. 
Still, the crowds were following him to see his signs. They were curious. They were interested. Who is this man? He teaches with authority and does marvelous, miraculous things. And so the table has been set, so to speak, for Jesus to teach in a peculiar way, in a way that we call parables. So the title of the message this morning is just introducing parables. This is parables part one. We're going to walk through a couple of uh, parables in Matthew's gospel. They, they're kind of all together over the next couple of weeks. But, but this, this beginning parable is very important because it kind of sets the stage for the ones to come. So what are parables? Well, in short, they are easy to grasp illustrations or stories that usually communicate one big point. One big point. All right, so just very quickly, this is different from, say, an allegory. Now, if you're in like a literature class, you may have been familiar, you may have familiarized yourself with the idea of an allegory. If you're not in a literature class and you don't know what that means, an allegory is basically just a carbon copy of another story, and everything in that story relates to something else. All right? So, you know, every person can represent something else. Every event can represent some other event. Every item, usually every important item, represents another thing of another story. A parable is not usually that complex. A parable is just telling an easy-to-grasp, easy-to-understand story, an illustration that's communicating one big idea. Now, sometimes there are correlations to be made, but a parable is just that. Jesus is trying to communicate one big idea in his parables. Now we'll notice Jesus' intentions behind these, uh, behind this, this use of parables to reveal the mystery of the kingdom to those who believe in him. And we'll get to that as we read the text. But my hope is that Jesus' parable of the sower, which we'll talk about this morning, will invigorate us, will revitalize us, revive us to put our hope in the God who causes the blind to see and not in our inability to do that. So when we read these parables, we think about God's ability to do the impossible, not our inability to do the impossible. So we're going to read the parable and then quickly move on to two focuses this morning. That's going to be why is Jesus teaching in parables and what does this parable mean? So find Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. We'll read the parable together. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell, among, fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we gather together as the people of God to hear. And we want you, by your spirit, to unstop our ears so that when we Read and listen to the word of God. We hear what you have to say. So Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to approach the text with humility, 
and to be ready to be transformed by it. Lord, use this time that we have together to study your word, to make us more and more like Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so just a few things to notice here about the parable and the setting itself before we dive into where we're going to camp out. First, Jesus is on a boat in the water speaking to the crowds while seated. So just think about this mental picture. There's a maybe a hillside and there's, a, there's water and Jesus has gone out into the water on a boat so that he might see all of the people, all of the crowds there, and he's seated speaking to them. Now remember in Matthew chapter 5, when we started the Sermon on the Mount, for Jesus to sit down and begin to teach was a posture of authority. To be seated while teaching uh, should, should clue us in that what Jesus is about to teach or what Jesus is about to say is very important. Second, notice that the crowds would have known in some sense exactly what Jesus is talking about. Right? I mean, all of them have some kind of interaction or connection with agriculture and farming. Maybe their family works on a farm, or maybe they have family members who own a farm. They perhaps walk through farmland to even get to where they are right now. So what we need to see is Jesus is not talking over their heads. He's showing that he knew their way of life. When Jesus is talking in parables, he's speaking directly to the crowds in a way that they clearly understand. Hey, you know how this works. A sower goes out to sow and he sows his seed and sometimes it falls among this kind of soil, this kind of soil, this kind of soil. But the good soil would produce a fantastic crop. I mean, they understand these things. It's not something that they have to be convinced of. But third, a good crop in that culture would have been tenfold. So you plant your seed and you water and you wait and you pray and the rains come and the crops grow and you reap a tenfold harvest, that's a good year. You're doing good. Everything is great. Your needs are being met. A tenfold harvest. A thirtyfold or a sixtyfold crop was a huge bumper crop, a, a great blessing. It would be something remarkable. But a hundredfold crop, that's an incredibly amazing blessing only seen in the work of Isaac back in Genesis chapter 26 when God blessed his work. In other words, a hundredfold crop would have registered in their minds as a divine work. God is in this. So they get it, right? The crowds understand in one sense what Jesus is talking about, but do they really get it, right? So let's keep going and then we'll take some time. So look at verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For, the one, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. 
For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So first big idea that we want to camp out this morning on in this passage is why Jesus taught in parables. Why is Jesus teaching in parables? Why is he communicating through these simple illustrations a a big point or a major idea? The disciples are apparently confused. I mean, they're going to him and saying, hey, what's going on? Why are you teaching like this? Why are you teaching them in parables? Well, it's not surprising, right? The disciples are confused. That's kind of the running story throughout the Gospels. And we can be kind of nonchalant or silly and non-serious about the fact that sometimes the disciples just totally miss the point. Let that be an encouragement to you, though. I find sometimes their ignorance quite comforting. They want to know why he's talking like this, and they don't understand, so they go and ask him. So if I find myself reading the Bible and going, man, I don't really understand what's going on, I am in great company, right? I'm in the company of Matthew and John and Peter and James and Bartholomew. But they want to understand, so they go to Jesus, and they're asking, what are you trying to accomplish? And Jesus answers them with the news that the kingdom of God is a secret or a mystery being revealed. And it's being revealed to those whom the Lord chooses. Look again at verse uh, 11. It says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So, So Jesus is saying to the disciples, you have been given the ability to understand. You didn't come up with that. Uh, You didn't grow in that. That's not something you acquired on your own. That was given to you. The ability to see and to hear and to understand the secrets or the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. Now, my translation says secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Your translation might say mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Um, And and throughout history, we've talked about the mystery. The theologians and scholars and commentators have used the word mystery of the kingdom. But mystery is not some unsolvable problem in the universe. Like sometimes we think about um, the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, or the doctrine of the incarnation, that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we try to wrap our minds around that and we just say, it's a mystery. I don't understand it. It's impossible to know. It's forever hidden. Well, that's not how the Bible uses the word mystery or secret. And, And the reason why I'm using those words interchangeably is because the Greek word for secret here in verse 11 is literally the word mysterion. It's it's where we get the word mystery from. A mystery is something hidden and often is then revealed. In this case, Jesus is teaching about the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of heaven in parables, which are themselves stories with a kind of hidden meaning beyond themselves, a secret meaning, a mysterious meaning. So the crowds, Jesus says, the them that Jesus and the disciples are referring to, have received much by way of the Old Testament, the prophets, the writings. The mystery of the kingdom is all over it. I mean, you read the Old Testament and you you can't come away as a Christian with anything other than the kingdom is here. The promises of the kingdom of God are here. The, The promise of the Messiah is all here. But they missed it. They saw it, but they didn't see it. They would hear it read, but they wouldn't understand it. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, 
in verse 27, it says, and starting with Moses and the prophets, he began to explain to them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he revealed to them the mystery of the kingdom that was already there. It's always been there. But the use of parables communicates something really, really important for us to understand. We, because of our sin, are blind to the truth, even when it's right in front of our face. So because of our sinfulness, often when we see the world around us, or when we see problems that we face, or when we see certain situations, our vision is blurred because of our sin. Our hearing is dulled because of our sin, not in a physical sense. I mean, obviously we can perceive with our eyes true things, real things. We see the things in front of us. We hear the the audio waves coming from some other source into our ears. But what I'm talking about is our ability to actually perceive reality. What's going on around me? Sin has broken our capacity to understand the truth. So Jesus says, seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus then quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, a passage that all of us are probably pretty familiar with, right? In the the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temples, or filled the temple, right? That, That seraphim were flying, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is the, the vision of Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. And after the angel comes and puts the burning coal from the altar of God on his lips and atones for his sins, then it says, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me, right? And then starting in verse nine of Isaiah chapter six, that's what Jesus quotes. What are you gonna do? You're going to go and tell a people about the truth. And they will hear, but never understand. They'll see, but never perceive. You're going to have the mystery of the kingdom with you, revealing it to them in in front of their faces, and they're not going to get it. This shows us that the misunderstanding of sinners when it comes to the truth should be expected. So when you go out and be a witness to the gospel, when you go out and share the good news with your neighbor or your classmate or your friend, you should not be surprised with, when they just don't get it. Or they, may, they say, okay, I understand, I think what you're saying, but I just don't even get why that's a big deal. That may be cool for you, but I just don't really get how that has any bearing on my life. So, so as an encouragement to you, Christian, that's not on you. Like their failure to understand isn't because you, it's not because you didn't get the note cards in the right order. Like you could have the most perfect gospel presentation and still the person across from you goes, yeah, I just don't see it. That shouldn't cause you to go from that conversation in despair full of sorrow at your incapacity to get it right, or you may have missed something and you think back, oh, if I, if, I, if I just would have said this or said that or answered that question in that way, then that person would have believed. Jesus is telling us right here, that's not how it works. That we're called to go and be faithful. And as the parable that we're about to see explained tells us, our job is not to cause growth. Our job is to scatter seed. 
Look at verse 17. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. For centuries, the people of God who are faithful to him and believing in his promise longed for the day when those mysteries that they grasped onto by faith would be revealed. You think about Moses, right? Being told about people prophesying in the camp during the wilderness, uh, wil- the wilderness wanderings. And Moses goes, oh, that, that, that all of you would prophesy, right? And there's someone who's going to come who's going to be an even greater prophet than me. They they longed for the day when the promises that they held on to in faith would be revealed in sight. And they missed it because they died. But now the disciples are witnessing in the person and work of Jesus the revelation of the mystery of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't miss the importance of this. What you're seeing right now, what you're hearing right now, the prophets of old and the righteous men of old longed to see, but weren't able to see it. So students, we don't need to miss the fact that we have in Scripture the revelation of God in Jesus Christ for us to behold whenever we want. Whenever we want, we can go and read these stories, these true stories of who God is and what He has done supremely in the work of His Son, Jesus. Right? Hebrews 1 tells us that in days gone by, he, God has spoken to us in His prophets, but Now he has spoken to us by his son. A greater revelation is is here. So if we hear and understand the word of the gospel, we should be stirred up to worship. Because being able to see and hear and understand the gospel of the kingdom is a blindingly wonderful kindness that you and I do not deserve. He gave us ears to hear. He gave us eyes that could see. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, there is great reason for us to be thrown into just passionate worship, that we praise God for who he is and what he's done and that he would see fit in his kindness and compassion to take my deaf ears and blind eyes and open them. When I was eight years old to hear a gospel presentation at a vacation Bible school in a little country church in Wetumpka, Alabama, that for whatever reason, that day was the day that I I heard the gospel that I had heard before, but my response to that gospel is, no, I am a sinner. I am in desperate need of a Savior. And And Jesus really is the promised one. He really is the son of God. He really did die on a cross for sinners like me. And if I would just believe in him, I could have eternal life. The only reason I could see that, the only reason I could hear that is because it has been given to me, Jesus says. And if you're not a follower of Christ, if you've not repented and believed, we'll get to this a little bit more in a minute. Jesus promises that all those who truly seek him will find him. So lean into your interest in Jesus. You have friends you share the gospel with who are interested but not convinced. Lean into their interest. Well, hey, I'd love to talk to you more about this. Would you, would you be willing to, to read with me? Maybe the gospel of Mark, maybe the gospel of John. I'd just love to, to read with you the, the story that I believe to be the most important story in the world. 
We have great testimony of people even in this room of coming alongside people who are not Christians and reading the Bible with them and the word has power to open up blind eyes. So Jesus is using parables to communicate this mystery of the gospel. But what does this parable before us mean? What does it mean? Although he doesn't always do this, in our case, Jesus gives us an explanation. So let's read starting in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was, grown, what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So the second big idea, we'll try to fly through this, is what, what the parable means. And hopefully, my, my, my prayer is that this is not going to be uh, super surprising to any of us. This is not going to be unbelievably re- revelatory for us because we probably have a good instinct on what it is that Jesus is talking about in this parable. Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that the seed is the word of the kingdom. In other words, the seed in the parable is the message of the gospel. And while that gospel message can be condensed into repentance of sin and faith in in the Messiah, the ramifications of that word, the ramifications of that gospel message means a new life, a changed lifestyle, and a new Lord. There are four soils that the seed falls onto. And thus there are four kinds of people who hear the gospel. The first is the path. Jesus says the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown. In other words, the path is what you find when you share the good news with someone and it's like in one ear and out the other. When they hear you and they're like, hey, cool, that's fine. That's cool. Yeah, I'm I'm not really interested in that. And they just kind of move on. The path is someone who has no interest in the things of God or no guilt over sin. And we will all come into contact with people like that. Now, the good news that we read in prophecies like Joel chapter 2 is that God can, by His grace, break up fallow ground. So when I share the gospel with somebody, I'm not trying to decide at that moment, okay, what kind of soil are you? Oh, I think you're going to be the path. So I'm not going to really waste my time on this. That is not how it works right? We're clearly commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. And you and I, we cannot see a person's heart. We can't understand what's going on in their life fully. We may have a perception of what kind of soil that person is and have no idea that what may happen through the very proclaiming of the gospel through your faithful obedience, what it might do. Regardless, however, we will come into contact with people who are on the path. 
It reminds us the task of evangelism and gospel proclamation in our own strength is absolutely impossible. It's impossible. We will strike out every time if all gospel proclamation is, is me trying to persuade you that you're your own God and you should stop because if you keep going, you will end in eternal disaster. Like, none of us are that good of salesmen especially to those who are spiritually dead and blind and deaf. So if it's up to us, it's not going to be good. We must be dependent on the Lord and His Spirit when we share. The second kind of soil, however, is rocky ground. The seed grows up quickly, but the sun quickly scorches it. No roots, no ability for the seed to bury down deep into the soil to gather nutrients and strength and stability means no longevity. It's not able to withstand the sunlight. It's not able to withstand the heat. It's not able to withstand, as Jesus says, persecution and tribulation. Here Jesus says that some will hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. So on the front end, everything's going to look wonderful. And in the same way, you go ask a farmer, when you see crops beginning to kind of spring up by themselves out of nowhere, a, a more novice farmer would get excited because they would say, oh, look, at the, cro- the crop's going to be amazing this year. It's already growing. But a seasoned, crop, a seasoned farmer would say, oh, that's going to burn up. It's not going to burn up. There's no way that can last. Because they recognize the only way that that kind of growth could happen is because it's false growth. It's not going to be long-lasting. It's not going to be real. It's not going to produce any fruit. Persecution and tribulation will come, and because there is no real root, the ones who receive it on rocky soil will fall away. Now, this is one reason that when someone tells me that they've become a Christian or respond to the gospel or some language like that, I will joyfully respond that they have made a profession of faith, which is clearly a work of God in their life. I want to be so quick and clear to run to that person and encourage them and say, God is doing something in you. And you've made this profession of faith. And I praise God for that profession of faith. But what I do not do to the seven-year-old who at VBS just prayed a prayer that someone led them through, which is fine and good. What I don't do is tell that seven-year-old little boy when he comes to me and says, I prayed the prayer, I'm a Christian now. I'm not telling him as a pastor of this church, hey, I am fully convinced that you are in Christ, which means you will persevere to the end no matter what. Because here's what that has done in our culture. What that's done in our culture is we have generations of people who live in our communities who were told that when they're seven years old or eight years old and went off to live as treacherous rebels with no interest in God, no interest in the things of God, no interest in the word of God, no desire to submit their lives to the Lordship of Christ. But what they're holding on to is someone told me when I was a little kid that I'm good. So I don't need to worry about how I'm living my life because everything's cool. And I believe once saved, always saved, right? That's a false faith. That's a faith that received it with joy, but wasn't really alive. It wasn't really bearing fruit. Fruitfulness, life, health, all of these things require time to discern. 
And not a lot of time, they're the vast majority of you, I, I haven't known you for very, very long. And I would say, I don't really have a reason to believe that you're not a Christian. But we have to be careful. Because I have friends that I grew up with, by all that I can see, were rocky soil. When I was a junior high student or a high school student, there was a clear commitment to Jesus. There was receiving it with joy. Everything was great. But then when they went off to school or got a new job or was uh, exposed to new ideas or something else came to challenge their faith, they withered and died and ran away. Does that mean that they lost their, their salvation? Well, no. It simply means that what they were trusting in was not the saving work of Christ, but in something else. Third, we have to go fast. Third is the soil covered in thorns. The soil covered in thorns. This is someone who hears the word, receives it, but then gets swept up in the cares of the world or the deceitfulness of riches, Jesus says. And this and the rocky soil before it is really close to what a guy named Dean and Sarah calls in his book, uh, an unsaved Christian. And that sounds like a weird thing to say. Uh, it kind of sounds weird coming out of your mouth. An unsaved Christian. That should be an impossibility, and it is. <laughs> These are people who might call themselves believers. They say, oh, well, I know God. I love Jesus. I believe Jesus died for my sins. But, but that commitment or that title that they hold for themselves is really more a cultural title than anything else that they claim as they run after the other things of the world. They could even be good things. They may be running after education or family or financial security, but the word of the kingdom is choked out in their life because it's replaced with other more stronger desires. And my great concern is that many people in the church today, young and old, are either rocky soil or thorny soil. And they've never been confronted to consider how do you know if the gospel has taken root? Well, I work hard, or I pay my taxes on time, or I treat my uh, coworkers nicely, or I go to church on Sunday, or I try not to be a jerk to the people in my class, or I try to get along with everybody. Well, these are all great things. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're a Christian. Are you surrendering your life daily by taking up the cross of Christ? Are you lashing all of your hope on Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Are you being revitalized day by day with hearing God speak to you from His Word and speaking back to Him in prayer? At the end of the day, are you believing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is supreme? That your desire supremely is God and not the things that God is going to try to give you or you think he's going to give you? For those who were sown among thorny soil, the word of the kingdom is choked out because it's only a means to an end. I'm a Christian because if I'm not, then people will think that I'm weird in my culture, or I won't have friends in school or wherever. 
My hope and my prayer for all of us is that we would say with David, God, search my heart. Know me, expose me, see if there's any wicked way within me. I mean, Paul says similar things in his letters. Test your faith and see if it's found lacking. Paul recognizes that even among the churches that he's writing letters to, there is rocky soil and thorny soil that looks good today, but give it some time. And he's saying, don't wait. Search your heart. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you the truth about who you are. Are you in Christ or not? If you're thinking like a disciple you may be disheartened to realize that the three previous soils do not produce life. (laughs) You go out and you're sharing the gospel. You're bearing witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're sharing the good news that Christ has come to save sinners. And these three soils have all been nothing, fruitless, ultimately. In other words, do not be surprised when you share your faith over and over and over and it is not well received. But there is a fourth soil that makes all of the farmer's toil worth it. There is a fourth toil, or fourth soil, the good soil, and it is the one who hears the word and understands it. That doesn't mean he understands everything about it. It doesn't mean that she has no questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that she has no questions about the complexities of God's word, no, no questions about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But as, for, as, it, as it regards the gospel of the kingdom, she understands the core message. Christ has come to save sinners. I am a sinner. If I put my faith in Jesus, he will take my sin and give me his life, his righteousness, his standing before God. I'll be adopted into his family. That understanding leads to fruit. For some, it's a hundredfold. For some, it's 60. For others, 30. And this shows us three things very quickly, and then we'll... We'll close. First, not every Christian will be as fruitful as all the other Christians. That's just a fact of life. Not every Christian will be as fruitful as everybody else. There's going to be a discrepancy, and that's okay. It's okay to, to realize that God is going to see fit to use this person in ways that, according to our perception, are more impactful for the kingdom than our faithfulness. That's okay. It does, it does wonderful things in us to learn how to encourage others towards fruitfulness and faithfulness and to celebrate others when they have fruit in their life worth celebrating. I mean, like, how exhausting is it, even if as Christians, we're looking around at people who are more spiritual than us and more fruitful than us and more effective evangelists than us, and we somehow become conceited and, and we somehow covet what they have. That's not what God is doing. That's a perversion of what God is doing. What God is doing in us is he's saying, look, your brother, your sister has something worthy of celebration. Let's celebrate together. Right? When when we find out that that somebody's engaged or when we find out that somebody is pregnant with a child, uh, our default response shouldn't be, well, I'm not engaged. Right? Like, Our default response, even if we're trying to have children, shouldn't be, as a married couple, well, we want kids. Why don't we get kids? Right? 
No, like God's blessing is given to that person so that the community of faith around them can join them in that celebration. When you are wrestling with sin and you have victory over that sin, you can have a community of people around you celebrating God's work in your life over that fruitfulness. When there's relationships that are tense and broken and in need of repair, and by God's grace, they are repaired, it's not so that everybody around that friend group can go, well, what did they do? They must know something about each other. No, it's, it's so that we come alongside one another and celebrate. Look how God is working. Look how God is working in our lives. Look what kind of fruit he's producing that we could not produce on our own. Not every Christian will be as fruitful as others, and that's okay. Second, fruitfulness seems to be linked to understanding. Jesus says the one who was the seed that was sown in good soil is the one who understands it and bears fruit. So fruit bearing seems to be linked in some way to understanding. The more we lean into knowing God, the more we will reflect that understanding with a fruitful life. These things are not in competition with one another. They're not going in separate directions. No, the more that I know, the more I will respond in faithfulness. The more that I will respond in faithfulness, the more insight I will have to learn more. This is, we don't have time to go there, but in Colossians chapter one, there's just this beautiful section where Paul is praying that they would increase in the knowledge of the Lord so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge. So Paul wants the church to increase in knowledge so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And as they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, they're bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge. You see how that cycle just keeps going further and further and further into the depths of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Third, every faithful Christian will produce a blessed harvest. Remember, the good crop is tenfold. But for those who understand, it's a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. All of these are bumper crops. All of these are blessings. You may not see it in your lifetime. But the parable here gives us hope that God will use us to multiply his kingdom in miraculous ways. The word will spread as Jesus' disciples go to scatter seed. It will spread. Even today, we must be faithful to spread that seed wherever we go. You and I cannot see the soil of a person's heart. We simply do not know where they are. We don't know what's going on. So we go and we share and we pray for the harvest, knowing that God's growth will produce a blessed crop. We know this in our own lives, don't we? At some point, all of us were the path. All of us heard the gospel and it was in one ear and out the other. All of us had the birds come and snatch away what had been sown in our hearts. But as time goes on, that fallow ground gets broken up. And the work of God through His Spirit and the faithfulness of His church begins to till that soil and it produces something. It produces soil that is ready to receive the good news of the gospel. And if you're in Christ, that's your story. By God's grace, your wicked heart, your 
half your dead ground was ripped up and tilled up and revitalized. As time goes on and the roots of our faith deepen, we continually see the goodness and faithfulness of God. Guiding us through persecution, walking beside us through tragedy, leading us around the desires and temptations of the world. Students, you can know, you can know if you are walking with Jesus as, as slowly and as hobbled as, as I do, or I'm having to get myself up off the ground because I keep falling every couple of seconds, I can still know with confidence that God is producing fruit in me. And God is producing fruit in you. If you are in Christ, if you understand, you are good soil. And the crop is coming. Maybe not now. Maybe not in your lifetime. What the prophets longed to see but never saw still came. And the thing that you and I are working towards, holiness, Christ-likeness, we may not fully see the, the, the fruit that's bared out in our faithful following, but it is coming. That crop is sure. So let me pray for you. We'll just have just a couple of minutes to, to chat.